following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're still in Hebrews. You're going to hear that for another month. We're still in Hebrews. And we're in Hebrews chapter 10. So, so far as we've been going through this book, and we've been jumping in and out with some different topics as well, one of the things that has kept coming up from the author of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is simply better than anything else you're looking at or talking about. And we've looked at a number of Old Testament characters. We've looked at some different things that were very important to the Jewish people, but the author keeps coming back again and again. Those things might have been good in their own way, but Jesus is better. And Hebrews 10 is no exception. And I'm going to start reading with verse 1. We're going to go verses 1 to 25 today. Rather than reading the whole chunk at one time and then addressing it, I'm going to break it down into a little bit of smaller portions because there's some language and some imagery that's used in this section that can be kind of weird to us. Uh, This is a 2,000-year-old writing, and it's to a different culture and in a different culture, which can make some things more in need of translation than other things. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We have seen how the old system of sacrifices under the law of Moses was simply a sketch, a shadow, a dim preview of the true form of the good things to come. So we're going to talk about what those good things are to come, but here's the idea in the imagery here. Uh, This is like a mold for a sculpture. So you'll see up on the screen, um, go back one slide, or go forward one slide. Uh, you see there's a mold around this apple. Now, I don't make things like this, but I have artistic friends who do. So the idea is that you create this mold, and then you pour something into the mold. You shut the mold, and then once it finally solidifies, now you've got the thing that the mold was helping you accomplish. So think of the Old Testament and its sacrifices and its laws as the mold. It was waiting for something to be poured into it and to fill it. And once something was poured into it, now what emerges there is the thing that we've been waiting for. So this is the image that's used here. So I don't know what translation you have. Uh, And I should note, as I go through this section this morning, I'm pulling from a bunch of different translations and a bunch of different commentaries because they almost all add something new and unique about how to look at these particular passages. But just keep in mind, old sacrificial system, old covenant, this is the mold. Something new is poured into it. Now, do note something. Uh, It doesn't mean that the shape that the mold provided was a bad shape at all. In fact, it was a good shape. It's that into which the final form has been poured. So when we look at the Old Testament, we've, we've got to remember that the writers of the New Testament told us that the Old Testament was inspired, that what was offered is like a teacher or a guardian that carefully leads us toward and points us toward Christ. Uh, early evangelism would have, in essence, have been done with the Old Testament. I mean, Christ is present there even before he was born. So let's not shut the first half of our Bibles and say this is irrelevant to us. It was an important form. Think of Jesus then as that which was poured into that form. And as God is incarnated on earth, now this is what we have been waiting for. The the Old Testament kept the structure, but Jesus is the one who filled it. It's one way in which Jesus can say, I came to fulfill the law, even while saying, I am establishing a new covenant. We just see perfectly in Jesus what the law was holding for us. We talked last week with the word agape. 
as we went through 1 Corinthians 13, the part of that chapter says that agape love is shapely, it's calmly, it's pleasing and good to look at. There's a form to it that is desirable to us. This is kind of the idea that there was a shapeliness, a, a desirability to the law even as it was given in the Old Covenant because it told us something about God. It told us something about righteousness. It told us something about who we are, what God has called us to. It, it had a pleasing form to it, but that wasn't the end of the story. There was something that needed to fill it and be the full expression, and that's Jesus. So since it's not the perfect form, this is the old covenant now, of these ultimate realities, the offering year after year of imperfect sacrifices cannot bring those who come forward to worship to the conclusion of the process of being cleansed perfectly from their sin. If you think of them as running a race toward holiness, they can never reach the end. They'll never cross the finish line. Their sin offerings to cleanse themselves from ritual impurity were never sufficient. If the sacrifices had actually been able to achieve this purpose, wouldn't the repetition of these sacrifices have become unnecessary? If they had worked, if they had cleansed the worshipers, then one sacrifice would have taken away guilt. And their self-judging consciousness would have been clear and clean. But these sacrifices actually remind us that we sin again and again, year after year. We know we are not free from impurity and guilt. So there's this strange thing I learned after my heart attack. And that is, the process of taking pills is in some way a daily reminder and a revisiting of the event. Because now I take four pills every morning and I take one pill every night. When I take them, even if I don't consciously think this, it's a subconscious reminder, Anthony, you had a heart attack. You remember? So you take pills in the morning, you take pills at night. And I was reading an article about this that noted, unless the pills are addressing something very important, sometimes this repeated revisiting, even subconsciously, of this memory of trauma can actually be more detrimental than the benefits that the pills bring. Because it keeps reminding you again and again, you were hurt, you were wounded, your body betrayed you. Do you remember? But that's not the point of pills, right? But in some ways, it, it creates a rhythm to your memory where you're constantly revisiting this. Now, um, just so you know, as I looked into this, I'm the prime candidate for all the pills that I take. I'm quite certain that the benefit I'm getting for them outweighs the downside of being reminded. But I think this is the idea of the sacrifices, that in the old covenant, the sacrifices reminded the people over and over, you're not good enough. You can't get it right. You'll be back next year or next month because once again, you will have failed. And this sacrificial system, rather than taking people into a place of freedom, became this this kind of ritual, this rhythm to their lives that constantly reminded them, you're not good enough. You'll never be acceptable to God. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who has a compulsion to be clean or maybe it's something that you deal with where they'll wash their hands over and over again because they're just convinced they're not clean. I'll do it one more time and I can get it right. I'll do it one more time and I can get it right. Meanwhile, the rest of us know that they're clean. They are clean. 
They just don't know it. They can't recognize it. And so they engage in rituals that keep reminding them that they're just never not dirty. And, and I, or at least in their perception. And I think we can do this spiritually if we're not careful. That we can be caught in this old kind of sacrificial system, though we don't sacrifice animals. At least I hope you're not. If you are, talk to me later. But we're doing things in the course of our life that are kind of reminding us over and over, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, and I need to do more and more and more to make myself clean. So we're conscious of this, and we do things like uh, have more devotions, and pray more, and tithe more, and we volunteer at church more, and we do missions, and we limit ourselves to Christian entertainment, and we give to every noble cause we can find to make ourselves clean, because we just always feel dirty. Now, none of the things I mentioned in that list are bad things, but they can become bad things if we use them as a process for us to keep trying to clean ourselves. Because then it just reminds us over and over, I feel so dirty, I'll scrub. I'll spiritually scrub. And we find all these things where we are seeking to clean ourselves over and over. And verse 4, in the end, the blood of bulls and goats made people temporarily acceptable enough to enter into God's presence, but they were powerless to take away the guilt of our sins. Our rituals of self-purification are powerless to take away our sins. Now, they might not be a bad idea in terms of establishing self-discipline in our lives, in recognizing that the things we do impact others, so we want to do things to live in the path of Jesus, but if we're looking for it to be the thing that takes away our guilt, to make us good good enough, or to make us clean, never going to work. We will become spiritually obsessive-compulsive with all the good things we're trying to do, just so we feel good about ourselves, or so that we think we can make ourselves acceptable enough to be in the presence of God. But those sacrifices are powerless to take away the guilt of our sins. So when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings were not what you wanted, But instead, you have given me a body that you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings were not what pleased you. I've come to do your will, God, as it is inscribed of me in the scroll of your book. And this is a reference to Psalm 40. Now, when it says that God doesn't want and takes no real pleasure in sacrifices, burnt offerings, and sin offerings, even though the law of Moses calls for them, And then follows this with, see, I've come to do your will. He effectively takes away the first covenant, animal sacrifice, in order to establish the second, more perfect covenantal sacrifice. This was God's will. We're made holy, purified, and sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the anointed, and this one-time sacrifice lasts for all time. So God's final goal for sacrifice was never to sacrifice animals for our our wrongdoing. His end goal, his plan, was always to sacrifice the lawgiver on behalf of the lawbreaker. And we see this in Jesus. Once again, Jesus being poured into humanity, filling that mold that had been prepared, as we saw in the Old Covenant. And in what we call the incarnation, becoming one of us and sacrificing himself for our penalty.
Now this goes back to the covenant with Abraham. We've talked about Abraham before in Hebrews, that Jesus is so much better than Abraham, but let's revisit it. So when God made a covenant with Abraham, they did something that seems weird to us, but was not weird to people who lived at the time. In the ancient Near East, when people made a covenant, they would kill animals and they would separate them, and they would walk between the slaughtered animal. And you could see on the screen, you have something of a path. And when you walked through these slaughtered animals, the message you were saying was, if I break this covenant... May it be done to me what was done to these animals. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, God does something that's unprecedented. He doesn't make Abraham pass through the animals. Only God passes through the animals. In essence saying, Abraham, if you break the covenant, may it be done to me what was done to these animals. We're not worried about God breaking the covenant. But God actually told Abraham, I will pay the penalty if you fail, which of course he did. And this is why Jesus is greater than Abraham. He is now the payment of that penalty. On the cross, we see him broken and spilled out. It's a fulfillment going back to this covenant with Abraham. That's why Jesus says, this is the body that God prepared. This was the body in which that sacrifice was going to be done to meet the righteous demands of God. And now, that pleases God. That satisfies the demands of God's righteous judgment. As Jesus is broken and spilled out for a debt that we could never pay. This takes us to verse 11. In the first covenant, every day, every officiating priest stands at his post serving, offering over and over those same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But after this priest, Jesus stepped up to offer his single sacrifice for all sins for all time. He confirmed his position of honor at the highest place of dominion and power, at the right hand of God. Since then, he's been waiting for the day the psalmist described, the Lord, that is God the Father, said unto my Lord, that is God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Because that's a weird phrase. This is the image. Uh, When someone conquered someone else, they put their foot on their neck. You read probably four to five instances of this in the Old Testament, but it's all through ancient history. This was simply the way it was done. That's how somebody becomes your footstool. You're in essence resting your foot on them. And it it is simply a sign that one person has conquered and another person has been conquered. It puts the conquered in probably the most vulnerable and humiliating person or position imaginable. And what's being said here is that there's a promise, going back to the Psalms, that when Jesus sits on the right hand of God the Father, and that is after his death and his resurrection, that now all of his enemies will eventually be his footstool. And that's where we're talking about the reign of Christ being fulfilled. There is a day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There is a day when evil is prone in front of God, with God's foot on its neck, so to speak, where he's been ultimately conquered and done away with. It just means Jesus wins. Jesus wins. We're still in the course of history where the battle is ongoing, but this is the promise. One day I will make your enemies your footstool, so all that is evil will bow. 
And for the children of God, we move in to the life that is to come. Whereas I've often heard people say, where all that is bad will be undone. So verse 14, with one perfect offering, Jesus has made a way to perfect forever in the world to come those who are now being made holy. Now they have the promise that they will one day finish the race toward holiness. The Holy Spirit testified about this through the prophet Jeremiah. I will make this kind of covenant with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them upon their minds. I will not keep their sins in front of my mind in order to punish them, because Jesus has paid their penalty. They'll be absolved of their guilt as though their sins had never existed. When there is forgiveness such as this, there is no longer any need to make another offering for sin. Depending what translation you have, it might say, I will remember their sins no more. Let's just note something about that language. God does not have amnesia. We don't remember things that God doesn't remember. God's not looking at my life and seeing huge blank spots in my history where I had sinned, but he's now forgiven me. Like, I wonder what Anthony did there. Right? So it's not saying that God has amnesia. It's just making the point. That it's possible now for God to look at us and not demand the price of justice from us. We're not the one giving a pound of flesh. Jesus did it for us. And because Jesus did it for us, God doesn't hold it against us. And I was trying to think of ways in which we could maybe relate to this in our experiences. And my one thought was an example where say someone has wronged you. And uh, they repented. You forgave them, all is well. And a while later, they come back up and apologize again, like, I'm still really sorry. And you're like, uh, I, wow, I don't even think about it anymore. I had totally forgotten about that incident until you brought it back up. Thanks. Um, you were carrying a burden that I'm not carrying. You were carrying a sense of guilt, and I had pretty much forgotten that it happened. Like, we're good. We're good now. Or maybe you've experienced the other way where you've been the one who keeps remembering that you hurt someone else with your sin and you go up to them and you apologize yet again and they get this kind of confused look. Oh, yeah, that's right. No, we're good. We're good. There's another pastor here in the community who years ago I coached his daughter for basketball. And there was one very tense game where he was very intensely giving advice to his daughter from the stands. And his daughter very intensely said she would no longer play in the game if her dad wasn't quiet. <laughs> um, so I sent an assistant coach into the stands uh, to confront this this uh, guy in, in front of the people around him, which really wasn't the right decision. Can I just say that? It was a bad decision. That was a player issue, and I made it a parent issue. And the dad came up to me after the game, and he said, you know, he said, I, I love you, I admire you, but that was wrong. Um, you did not handle that properly. I said, you're right, I didn't, and I apologized. And for probably a couple years, every time I saw him, I apologized again. till I could see he was getting really frustrated with me. <laughs> like, dude, we're, it's fine. It happened once, we talked about it, we're all good. 
And I, I realized I was carrying a burden of guilt about that thing. It still lingered in with him. It stuck in my head that he did not carry. As far as he was concerned, we were good. If I never mention that again to him, he'll probably forget it. He probably has by this point because I've learned my lesson. It's been a while since I've said anything. I think that's the idea. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, it's not as if we don't sin against God. Whatever we sin, we do. We sin against God and others. But because of Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers us, when we repent, and Jesus says, I've got it covered, we don't need to keep going back to God and going, hey, you remember that one thing I did a couple years ago? I'm really sorry about that again. This isn't a perfect analogy. Because I'm trying to make a human analogy with something that involves God. But do you get the idea? God's like, I covered that. We're good. Maybe you have to revisit stuff with people that you wounded. Maybe there's a genuine reason to have an ongoing discussion about what forgiveness and repentance and restoration looks like relationally with people. But when Jesus forgives us, friends, Jesus forgives us. Now we're good. We don't have to carry that weight of guilt and shame with us anymore. Jesus took that. It's not just the eternal penalty that he takes. There's meant to be an experiential reality to this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All to him I give. And now he's got that. I don't have to carry it anymore. I don't have to continue to go back. When I was a kid, remember when revival meetings used to come into our communities? Uh, I tell you, I went up every time. I've probably said this before. Every time. It's like I'm convinced God's deeply unhappy with me yet again. So every time I went up. And it, being uh, the, the good Arminian, it was going up again and again to accept Jesus as my Savior again and again. But the reality was I hadn't settled into what Jesus had done for me. I surrendered my life to Christ. I asked for him to be my Lord and Savior. I, I, I sought to live in, in his path. I'm trying to think of the right word to use. Like I committed. I committed. I gave my life to Jesus. And now Jesus has died to take care of the penalty of my sin. And as I walk through my life with Jesus, when I go to God and I repent, that, that's done, friends. It's the end of the conversation with me and Jesus about that issue. Or at least I believe that's what God intends. Jesus forgives me. It's covered. And once again, that, that doesn't absolve me from going to people around me if I need to keep working to make things right with the people I've hurt. But Jesus has covered my sins. Verse 10, So, my friends, Jesus by his blood gives us courage to enter the most holy place. He has created for us a new and living way through the curtain that separated us from the holy place. And that is, his death has torn the veil. So I've got an image on the screen. If you're not familiar, there was a veil that was in the temple that kept the commoners out of the holy of holies. The most holy place where you went to really be in the presence of God. And when Jesus dies, Scripture records, the veil was torn in half. There is no more veil. 
Because now Jesus is walking with us into this holy place. Now, in the new covenant, we're in the holy of holies. We're in the presence of God all the time. That's just where we live as Christians. Without Jesus beside us, we're struck down. But Jesus is there as our advocate, as our Savior, as the one who has forgiven us and cleansed us and made us clean. And we'll get to some of that image in just a little bit. So now with boldness, we approach the throne of grace. Because Jesus has taken care of the price of our sins. Now we are sanctified, and we all can enter in. Since we have a great high priest who presides over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts full of faith, with hearts sprinkled with the blood of Jesus' atonement that cleanses us of a conscience that relentlessly reminds us of our guilt, and with bodies cleansed with the pure water of the grace of Christ, not simply consecrated water from a bowl to cleanse us. Uh, there's different ways that Christians understand this language of baptism that we just read, this idea of being washed with water. Uh, some people believe that the water itself, that God intends to use the act of baptism to in some manner impart a new measure of righteousness or cleanliness. Some think it's just a symbol. Um, I, I believe it's a symbol, and I'll tell you why in a second. So the writer of Hebrews in this paragraph I just read is summarizing what he's been saying. Jesus has filled the mold as the great high priest. So the real deal is here now. The old covenant is fulfilled. Now we begin the new. Jesus tears the temple veil that keeps us from the holy of holies. And he takes us with him into the holiest place. The presence of God, which if you were a follower of Jesus, that's where you are right now. You're in the holy of holies. Thankfully, Jesus is with us. Jesus provides the ritual purification needed. And this is a reference now to two things that happened in the Old Testament. The blood of atonement is from Jesus instead of the blood of animal sacrifices. And now he washes us with his grace instead of us washing in a bowl. So I've got some images up here. Uh, The one on the top right, you would sprinkle blood over people. This was a common thing that was done actually in many religions. It was a symbol people understood at that time. It seems weird to us. If you'd walk in some morning, I'm like sprinkling blood at you, um, you would leave. But for the Jewish people walking into the temple, if blood is sprinkled on them, it's a ritual purification for them. That they would wash their hands. It was a ritual purification. This idea now they are clean. Well, with Jesus, now Jesus has taken care of that. Now we're clean because of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has spiritually been sprinkled over all of us. And now this, we don't have to wash our hands to come into church on a Sunday morning. Jesus has done the cleansing for us. In fact, it says that it's engraved in us. And I think the idea of this is that now our purification is part of who we are. We don't have to continue to revisit it. We have Jesus. Jesus is in the, purifies us as part of the process of us being his children. So verse 23, let's hold strong to the confession of our hope, never wavering since the one who promised it to us is faithful. Let us consider how to inspire each other to greater love, and that's agape love. And to righteous deeds, remembering to gather as a community, as some have forgotten, 
but encouraging each other, especially as the day approaches. Don't get too hung up on the day. It could be death. It could be the end of Jerusalem. It could be the end of the world. Uh, commentators aren't real sure. The original audience apparently knew what it meant. It didn't need clarification. Um, so just remember, we do this as any of those days approach. So I want to talk a little bit about the results of this. All we've been talking about today, it's some kind of heavy theology, right? Jesus did these things for us. He's died for us. He's cleaned us. He's made it right. He takes us into the Holy of Holies. Like, this is amazing news, especially for the Jewish audience that this writer was writing this letter to. They grew up in this Jewish context, and everything is changing. Okay, so now what do we do with that? What difference does it make in our life? I want to revisit the last paragraph we read. Three things. Number one. Hold strong to the confession of hope, never wavering, since the one who promised it to us is faithful. So here's your image, and that's of a ship that stays steady in the midst of a storm. The idea is that because of what Jesus has done for us, we now have this hope that we cling to. And this hope has to do with forgiveness, sanctification, a life in eternity with God. And so now we cling to this. And, and when we do that, it's like dropping an anchor. Uh, it's like having great stabilizers. I don't know the language. I'm not a sailor. But I know there's some boats that are more stable than others. I don't know why, but they are. This is the idea. This stabilizes you. And when you hear the language of storms that are placed in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's two things it refers to. One is bad doctrine. Don't get tossed about by every wind of doctrine. The other is just the storms of life, which could be persecution, which could simply be trials. But the idea is that this is meant to stabilize us. And the stabilization, one of the words that is used in the original language here has to do with creeds. And the idea is that in community, we get together and as people of God, we as a group cling together to that which we know to be true about who Jesus is, about what he has done for us. This is actually the the last part of this paragraph as well, but it starts with a language that is embedded in community. We need to know what Scripture says. And then as we get together and we talk about it like we're doing now, we have classes afterwards where you can learn even more. We have small groups. You have conversations over coffee. You hang out in each other's homes. It's all ways in which we continue to have these conversations about who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and the kind of hope that that brings us now and in eternity. And we do it together, friends. We do it together. I know we've been harping on this for the last month or two about the importance of community, but the Bible comes back to it again and again. We're meant to do this together. The second thing is that we inspire each other to greater agape love and to righteous deeds. So we spent the last two weeks on agape, so I'm not going to revisit agape. But I love the language here. Inspire is this really nice way of saying jab poke, prod, kind of get under someone's skin, incite, might be a better word, which is why I like this little cartoon. Like, hey, are you agape loving? Hey, 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 I'm going to do this till you get annoyed. Hey, (laughs) that's kind of the idea here. You get under somebody else's skin about inciting them to agape love and to righteous 
deeds. Like part of what we do as community is go, um, hey, are you loving your friend well? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Hey, are you loving your spouse well? Hey, are you loving your spouse well? I could, I could really make you all annoyed if I do this long enough. But that's the idea. So I'm going to pick on Corbin Shaw for a little bit. Corbin has a great way of doing this. I've been in numerous conversations where people will be sharing something in their life or something God's been really convicting them about, challenging them, some area in their life. And the conversation ends and we're like, oh, I hear you. I'll pray for you. And Corbin's like, "Uh, what are you going to do about it this week? Settle down, Corbin. All he means is, yeah, but what are you going to do? Practically speaking. I mean, it's awesome. God's convicted you on this. What are you going to do? So if I were having a conversation with Corbin and I would say, oh man, I'm just, uh, I am not investing quality time in my wife like I should and God's really convicting me. Corbin will never just go, okay, Corbin will go, so what will you do this week to invest quality time in your wife? Right? That's inciting each other to agape love and to righteous deeds. Is to being bold with each other. When someone comes to us and says, I'm struggling with this area. Hey, I'll pray with you. I hear you. I will do what I can to empathize and let you know you're not alone and I love you and God loves you. And now when you leave this conversation, what do you plan to do this week to address that? Someone says, man, there's a lot of needs in our congregation. Yeah, what are you going to do to fill one? That might cost me something. Oh, it better. That's agape love. It might make me uncomfortable. Uh Uh-huh, poke, poke. Walk that way, go there, do that thing. See, all this heavy stuff about Jesus died for us and he saved us. And now we're clean and we don't have to carry guilt of our past sins when we repent and we're forgiven. And all this ritual stuff, Jesus did all the work. Like, do you realize the Savior you have? Awesome. Now what? Now, incite each other into passing on the kind of love to others that you've experienced from Jesus. Don't just kind of tread water in church life. Um, Don't be passive. We're never called to be passive in that sense. We incite each other, inspire each other to agape love and to righteous deeds. That's a lot of fun to talk about. I was looking forward quite a while to annoying you all with my example. But thinking about what that looks like in real life is a different thing. And recognizing, for one, that calls us to boldness when people around us let us into their lives. And we know there's an area where we ought to be prodding them to show agape love or do a righteous deed that we need to work on our boldness to speak up. And with grace... Speak truth. That also means we have to be open to it. That if uh, the Corbins in your life come up and go, uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it tomorrow? Show me a plan that you have. If God has convicted you, God is probably convicting you not just with feelings, but you ought to do this as a result of your conviction. What will it be? So we've got to be open to that. And we've got to be bold enough to, to say it to people as we need to. And then finally, the last part of that paragraph was gather as a community and encourage each other especially as the day approaches
so yeah, Jesus is the great high priest who paid the price for our sins. We can now boldly enter into the Holy of Holies. I mean, we're there now. We're cleansed inside and out. We have forgiveness, freedom, and hope. Now what do we do? You gather as a community. It doesn't mean you become ingrown and isolated. All three of these things now, the holding strong to the confession of faith is meant to be done in community. We strengthen each other about the core tenets of our faith and who Jesus is, and that's through the study of Scripture and probably also through hearing the stories in other people's lives about how God has been faithful and how Jesus has done a work. So we have that hope and probably the conviction that comes with it. So that that's done in community. And then there's inspire each other. You can't inspire other people if you're alone. That's done in community. And then he just bluntly says it at the end of this paragraph. So gather as community and encourage each other. So this encourage is an interesting word. So when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described as our paraclete. Some of you have been here for a long time have probably heard that word quite a few times. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. It means encourager. It's an advocate. Well, in Hebrews, when it says encourage each other, it is paraclete each other. So we're on a mission, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God gives us his spirit to encourage us, among other things. We are called to give the same kind of encouragement to those around us. Now, I've heard it said, and I think there's wisdom in this. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit in the sense of, let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Right? We're not the Holy Spirit in that sense. But in terms of, when we think of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is for us. We give our lives to God, and God gives us his spirit to indwell us, to guide, to comfort, to challenge, to encourage. I mean, the Holy Spirit does all these wonderful things because the Holy Spirit is for us. The presence of God is with us for our good. Okay, so when we get together as a church community, we're called to paraclete with each other. We're to be for each other. That is comfort, encourage, guide. You could go through most of the most of the list. It's probably a fairly similar list about the role the Holy Spirit plays in our life and the role we should play in the lives of the people around us in church community. It we're advocates for each other. It's a remarkable thing that God has given us to do. I, I'm often in awe and a little confused. By the fact that God lets us do so many things in his kingdom on his behalf. Like, I know me. (laughs) That feels like a dicey proposition to me. But it didn't to God. This was God's plan. I will bring my people together in community. And as his word and as his spirit work in us. And as Jesus does this work of transformation, at the same time, God's people, God's children, gather together and they do work on each other too. And the Bible intends to create a picture of this that's beautiful. So just very practically speaking, I want to go back to this idea of inspiring each other. That could sound really intimidating, but what does life look like together in this kind of community where when I show up on a Sunday this is a community where I can talk with people 
freely, and this could be, once again, I shouldn't just say Sunday, over coffee, small group, over the phone, you name it. I could talk with people in this church and they go, you know, God's doing this work in my life. He's convicting me about this. And my friends in this community don't just let me slide. I mean, they empathize with me and they hold me close and they go, yeah, we're doing this together. And then they say, Anthony, what does that mean God is convicting you to do tomorrow about this? And then I'm accountable, and that's what I start to do. And and God does this work in me through his people. But then I do that for you. And throughout this community here, you're going to people, and you're letting them into your life, and they're letting you into their life, and we're all playing this role for each other together where we hold each other close. We go, God's working in all of us. Awesome. Let's do this. Now, I need to be pointed with you. I need to incite you to agape love and to righteous deeds, and we'll hold to our confession of faith together. We won't waver. Hope is in Christ. We'll do this. We're locking arms and walking through life together. Okay, a little bit of that sounds intimidating, but an awful lot of that sounds like a little taste of heaven to me. I, I, I think that's God's design. That's God's design. And I think if we can embrace this, if we can walk into this as a church community, I think we'll begin to experience uh, what it means that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I'm grateful, first of all, for Jesus. Uh, just as we're going through Hebrews again, just this reminder of the awesomeness of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, of God in the flesh. Where the lawgiver pays the price for the lawbreaker. Where because of Jesus, we can be clean. We can be freed from guilt and shame. That we can hold fast and not waver in the storms of life. Because we cling to a strong Savior. But then, Lord, also that part of your plan is to draw us into this kind of church community where we experience from others the reality of your presence. As we are your hands and feet, as we are your body, uh, your plan, yeah, your plan is that we experience you through each other in some sense. Lord, give us the wisdom, the humility, the boldness, the grace and the truth to do this well. Not for our glory, but for your glory. So it is clear to all of us in this church and anyone outside of it that God is at work transforming people into the image of Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.